welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. Yay! Hi, Ruth. Hi, Marinella. What's up? What are we talking about this, this week? Tonight, we're going to be talking about rural, which is basically an opportunity to to the absolute opposite of our episode on cities and focus on rural communities. Especially because a lot of the time we talk about technology, it is really city-based and, you know, smart cities is one of those things that's talked about all the time and what kind of technologies are being developed there. But it's actually ignoring that there are a lot of people living in other places doing innovative things with technology and also just having very different circumstances and relationship with technology that we really wanted to cover. Yeah, different challenges, different places, different things and still having a lot to do with digital and the things that we're talking about here. Um, But lucky for us, City Kids, uh, we have a guest who are we interviewing this episode. We're going to be talking to Ashley Whedon. Ashley is a PhD student in rural studies at the University of Guelph in Ontario, where she's focusing on researching place-based rural innovation systems and community capacity building. That's a lot. Um, but yeah, let's let's let Ashley uh, let us know about what she does. Let's go to the interview. So hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. I wonder if you could just like kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself. And particularly on Twitter, I see that you describe yourself as a rural futurist. But what does that mean? All right. So the... I guess first things first, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Guelph in the Rural Studies program there. Uh, and I've just just defended my qualifying exam on Thursday, so I'm still riding that high. Of finally, woo! Yay! That's pretty awesome. Um, and my work is mostly focused on place-based rural innovation. So looking at opportunities to center conversations about place and the creation of place in the innovation discussion um, rather than necessarily focusing on what kind of bits and pieces of uh, like a widget or a particular outcome of the innovation, but the place where things happen. So I'm most interested in that that side of the equation. Um, but the rural futurist moniker, I guess, I took that on a bit tongue tongue in cheek in the beginning because so many so many of the people I was running into in the community innovation space, in the kind of policy innovation space, would call themselves futurists. Um, but they all kind of had this default urban tint to things. They were the, the language used, the kind of assumptions of, of what goes into this new urbanism kind of ignored the whole reality of communities that I had spent my entire career working with and for, which were rural communities. And so I took that on a little bit, um, kind of thumbing my nose a tiny bit at a lot of the a bit of the pretension that I saw kind of floating around there. But it very quickly became... Uh, an interesting way to start that conversation around the default of all of these future-oriented discussions being urban and what does a rural future look like? How do we envision not just next year or the next three years, but the next 25 years, the next 100 years on a rural horizon that to me seems very different than than what we assume when we talk about smart cities or the age of cities. That's so cool. (laughs) I'm so happy that someone has a career entirely devoted to this that's amazing um can you tell us a little bit about the project that you have been doing for uh, the digital justice lab the right to be rural right so a colleague uh, out of dalhousie university 
uh, Karen Foster. And the other author on that Right to Be Rural collection, the other co-editor was Jennifer Jarman out of Lakehead, put together this collection called The Right to Be Rural. And it's a an edited volume focused on this conversation of citizenship in the contemporary discussion with a specific rural like rural lens to it. So the overarching conversation is what what does the right to be rural look like? So I used the grant really to do some do some research and do some investigation into sort of this resistance to the concept of a, of a smart city in urban environments and to pull that out and tease that out in terms of in a context where we have the the digital divide between rural and urban in terms of available infrastructure. Maybe this is the only upside of that divide is that to be very purposeful about how we invite this technology into our communities. So that grant facilitated doing some research on those current conversations that are happening around this resistance to private companies coming in and and really planning the urban future as a sort of default assumption uh, and what that would mean in a rural context. So I guess the question then is like, well, what does it mean in a rural context? What is it that you found out from talking to people? Right. So uh, some of the interesting conversation is that we... We don't really have an equivalent of sort of resistance to the rural, uh, resistance to the smart city concept in rural. I think a lot of that comes from this idea of we need people to build digital infrastructure. The the gap in terms of fiber optic infrastructure available just in, in southwestern Ontario alone is about $4 billion in terms of just the, the pure amount of modern ultra high speed infrastructure that we would need in order to service, get fiber to the premise for everybody in, in this region. So that's just one particular region of Canada. I mean, that covers about 10% of the Canadian population. When we look at rural communities, they tend to look at this invitation to have anybody that offers sort of a solution to bring the infrastructure, that trade-off. And so, you know, this idea of a really great example around this conversation and how challenging this is, is the town of Innisfil in Ontario was facing, you know, a massive investment in trying to build a transportation network. And rather than invest in that as a core city service, the hard choice was made, you know, well, we could invest into providing subsidized Uber rides. And so they partnered with Uber to provide subsidized rides within a certain city limit. We're like, where's this story yeah, going to go? Yeah. <laughs> you know, quickly found out that there's really no cap on that, right? It doesn't scale. There's a reason why we have public transportation is because... Mm-hmm. Uh, the private side it doesn't it, you can scale it infinitely and it's just going to become more expensive and the trade-offs there you know are now you're in relationship with uh, an american-based company you know you're collecting massive amounts of data that in my opinion really should be publicly you know public stewardship over that data but it, it belongs to private equity now but that was a hard translation right this was an idea um, and at the time considered a very innovative and forward-thinking way to go into things but now you're kind of in the situation where you're a bit stuck so in rural communities, there is that real danger, right, of trying to move the ball forward, taking these risks, which I think they sh- Innisfil should be applauded for trying to find some sort of solution, and then finding out that, you know, sometimes we get in, into partnership with these companies that are private equity companies, right? They are not necessarily thinking about uh, or encouraged to be pushing that community stewardship of things. So you're seeing these things start to emerge in a rural context, but no one's really talking about this because I think largely people forget about rural in these conversations. Connectivity is a basic human right, according to the UN. This isn't just a luxury service or a nice-to-have service that people buy. It's necessary for everything from education to health delivery to how we socialize. 
uh, it's, it's core critical infrastructure. And everyone keeps saying this is important and we need to invest in this infrastructure. We need to move it forward. It's, it's absolutely critical for rural development. Why do we have the need to keep saying that? How can we never move the bar forward? It's, it's really frustrating. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then you layer that on with the fact that remote and indigenous communities are also like underserved and sometimes mm -hmm. not concentrated in urban areas and then it just becomes exponentially for me more obvious how like this is not part of the Canadian government like the priority to kind of give the baseline of basic services to everyone in Canada equally simply people are not a priority Ruth? Yeah. Exactly. Go ahead, Ruth. Yeah. I was going to say, and I think like we're actually kind of answering the question that I was going to ask next, but it's an interesting point because I was thinking about how in a lot of futurism or speculative fiction, that kind of thing, rural places are depicted as the last free places, places with more rights. Like I was thinking about Cory Doctorow's Walk Away, which is very much about walk away from these destructive surveillance capitalist cities and try and building something new in I mean you know in in that book it's more like out in the desert where nobody is um, or where there are some people and they're trying to build their own civilization but there's this idea that like that's where people are still free um, that's where there is less surveillance or less capitalism in fiction um, and I was just wondering like what do you think about this as a romantic view and Are there places where this actually is true? Yeah, so there, there's a couple things that are that are really interesting about that sentiment and, and about how rural places kind of show up in these conversations. And even in the conversations where we talk about affordability in the current context around affordability and around, you know, who um, who we're encouraging to move to rural places and we say, you know, come start, you know, come locate here. And it's a, it's a major, you know, call for people that, Um, you know, it's impossible to buy a an entry level point to the real estate market in Toronto and Vancouver in Canada anymore. You just can't, like, or London or Berlin or any, you know, any of the major cities. And so the encouragement is just like, we'll go to the rural areas and 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 buy there. And so then that's how we create some to to a large extent a lot of the suburban pressure too as well, right? As, as you move further and further out for affordability reasons, but some of this is based on a couple a couple assumptions. One is that just move your life there and it will be the same because of course this community will have all the same infrastructure and assets that this other one did. Um, so we sometimes find when people do make that move, you know, they, they're able to buy an affordable home, but then they're just kind of, wait a second, you know, like this doesn't, I can't just go out to dinner at 10 o'clock at night because there's, you know, one place and it's closed or, you know, the level of connectivity that I need in order to work remotely isn't there. And so it's predicated on these assumptions that all, all communities have the same basic assets and investments. And they haven't. So that tends to be our encouragement now for young people to, to move rural for those reasons. And we need them. It's, a, it's an effective call. However, the push in the direction that you're talking about, and, and I think that's kind of the twin side of that whole push-pull argument, is the assumption that there's nobody there, right? So um, so I can, you know, in a piece of speculative fiction, the idea of you can go out to the rural areas and start over, it's almost like an urban colonizing of rural space to, to a certain extent, right? It's this idea of nothing exists there other than what I'm going to build there. It's an empty vacuum versus the understanding that rural spaces and places have their own history and their own communities and there are people that live there and that comes up a lot you know in how we talk about climate refugees or climate change into the future is this notion 
of you often talk about people say, well, we need to put a, a, a hydroelectric power dam right here because nobody lives there. And they'll often put it over a place that if you're familiar with the map, you know, well, 15,000 people already live there. That's a community that you're saying nobody lives in. So it's this interesting tension in terms of the idea of being more free. I think that's where we get this false nostalgia for something that maybe never existed, is that rural places are complicated places just like everywhere else. And so the idea of how they're governed, how that space is used, who gets to belong to those places, the sense of identity um, and the, the history that goes into those places, you know, means that they may feel more free for some people and not free for others who gets to feel like they belong in those spaces. So I think a lot of that has to do with people that have an external view of rural areas as only defined by something that I see rather than as inherently defined by what's already there. So one thing that you just said, like, how are they governed? So how, how's digital policy or how are digital policy decisions being made about these communities, especially in Canada? Um, what are the power dynamics at play? Like, Yeah, it's digital policy just in general in terms of both the decision now for a lot of governments to go to a digital first orientation in terms of service delivery uh, is a massive step forward um, and something that I think that we need in the North American context. However, you know, something that's interesting about that in terms of service delivery of something like health, there is, is the telehealth or virtual health delivery actually something that came up to solve rural problems now being successfully delivered in urban environments, right, to combat isolation and do community paramedicine for people that are problematic long-term calls. These were all mostly rural developed solutions that are finding the other direction. So we talk about that digital policy. That's an interesting thing to me because the assumption is often in those policies, the other, that this is something that's going to be delivered from an urban context to save or fix or bring up rural areas. I don't know that we have really effective and meaningful cross-jurisdictional or inter-jurisdictional inter digital policy in terms of even province to province or interoperability. It's <laughs> Sunday. I've lost all my words. Between province to province in terms of how they're developing their own digital policy and then certainly nationally. But the same challenges that we face in almost every other avenue of, of public policy persist in digital policy when it comes to rural development is that decisions are made in Toronto or Ottawa or Vancouver or the major cities, often by people that have no connection to how those decisions are going to play out in real life. And the legacy of sort of this neoliberal approach to public policy development through things like new public management and, and all of those things that uh, were supposed to run government like a business, uh, they have this side effect where if you're a good manager in, in public health or if you're a good manager in accounting, then you should be a good manager in agriculture or rural policy. And so you have people moving around from portfolio to portfolio that may not have the experience or that lived experience of what this policy is going to look like in reality. And finally, my sense is that often we, uh, if we're coming up to an election, uh, not to be cynical, but there's never more interest in rural investments than when there are, uh, when then we're very close to an election. And I feel like that's something that is, uh, is an international phenomenon is, as we head towards electing uh, election season, that interest in supporting rural communities all of a sudden spikes. And the challenge there being that are we investing enough? So if we've had 40 or 50 years of broadband policy statements in Canada and we've continued to invest and invest and invest over that time, my, my gut feeling is, you know, we're not investing enough at the time in order to actually significantly move the needle forward or we're investing in the wrong things. And that comes again from that 
that more more generalist approach to decision making. It's interesting how just what you were mentioning when there's an election coming up, all of a sudden there's some political power surrounding the rural, but in actuality, when you see like how investments are made, policy how policies are made, even processes of consultation, if there are any processes there. Um, it's almost like that that political power was just more like a marketing thing instead of like actual power power. So I don't know, it's it's interesting. I would I would totally agree. I mean it's it's also a case of there's a lot of assumptions made about about rural people and what the and I think often we use I think I think there's a, a lazy trick that sort of the, the new urban left or the new urban the new urbanist discussion puts forward even in very progressive circles is this idea of kind of the backward redneck rural voter as a foil to all of the things that progressive urbanism is supposed to push. And a lot of that is is based in the same kind of stereotyping that switched would feel very out of place or uh, be a direct affront to a lot of people in those same circles. Um, so I think there's this characterizing of, of rural people and rural places as needing to be fixed or as backward or as not as socially progressive or not as uh, welcoming or in a variety of ways. And, and like, I think my argument is then, you know, when you flip it back and you look at cities like Chicago, the most racially segregated city, uh, arguably in the U.S., but also home to a lot of progressive, really interesting things. So you can flip that argument both ways, right? Places, places change place to place. And you can say that about urban places and you can say that about rural places. And so unfortunately, I think, and that's part of part of what draws me to, to a lot of the work that we're doing and even that consultation bit. When the government of Canada launched its innovation agenda in 2016, none of the consultations happened in an urban community. Like all of the consultations for that national strategy were based in urban communities. So you either had to come to an urban environment to participate in that, or you didn't participate, you know, the the optics of that is that out of the gate, we don't think innovation happens in rural communities. Why would we look for that input? We don't expect to find it. Wow. Yeah. To, to make a popular culture reference, it's like uh, Taylor Swift's music video <laughs> for uh, We Need to Calm Down, <laughs> which otherwise I do think is fun, but uh, I'm banning in the video Taylor Swift from this podcast. <laughs> no, no Taylor Swift video references allowed? <laughs> nope. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Fine. There are some bops on that new album, but I understand. I understand. <laughs> but there's a there's a bit where there's lots of homophobic people and they like are depicted like farmers. That was all my point. Yeah, I think that I mean and that's such a clever that you can use that video as such a as an example for so many things, right? It's you know people centering themselves in discussions that they really shouldn't center themselves in. So you have you know this beautiful cis uh, straight woman who's, you know, putting herself in the very center of, of a dialogue uh, that she maybe isn't about her. Uh, and, and then using, again, like you're saying, this kind of the trailer park imagery, like all of it can feel very strange, particularly when you think of like the urban hipster or like I always call it the craft brew dude, right? Like this is head to toe flannel and uh, and the beanie and everything is appropriating in some ways, like a very, a very yeah. rural image, right? There is this attempt at looking one way while looking down your nose at it in another way. And we, I mean, this is, is a thing that unfortunately the ruling class does with most cultures that it consumes. So why would the rural be any different? Except that we don't tend to think it that way because of that strange place that it occupies of this idea of going forward. I heard something really great that kind of relates to that kind of uh, metro normativity um, was this idea that queer people, in order to find a sense of belonging, had to be in an urban environment. 
Um, and hmm. that was such a great term for for a variety of reasons because I have is that true? Is that does is that actually bear out in reality? I think challenges a lot of people that would see that and say, well, no, I, I've had a totally different experience. So, uh, and I don't know Ruth, you and I talked about this in the setup for this is this idea of some people finding that better sense of belonging in an urban environment versus those that find it rurally uh, is very different. Yeah, this episode yeah. is brought to you by Metro Normativity. <laughs> I just thought it's such a great word. <laughs> it is a really yeah, good I word. Yeah, I love learning new terms. That's yeah. great. And also, one last pop culture reference. Fabulous. Queer Eye. Queer Eye does take a lot of this stuff of like, well, even their slogan, right? Like making red states pink. Yeah. And when you look at the episodes, a lot of them do center around this rural, um, almost like the trope of the uncivilized or not uncivilized, more, more unsophisticated individual or family that only if they had a little bit more style, their lives could be better. I mean, I'm oversimplifying this, but just to highlight that whole trope of like it's easy for me to just crap on taylor swift and you know everything that she does but even in things that are like a little bit more loved by certain peoples we find those tropes so it's it's part of the the cultural stuff that's going around and that we're celebrating or or consuming or talking about totally and it's like this it's this tug of war like i more and more kind of leaning into this idea that you know, rural spaces are never just space, right? We never think of them as just, they're never neutrally defined. And so, and a lot of that definition either comes from the outside. So you have either this kind of like this backward kind of homey, kind of folksy or, you know, uncultured look around rural, or you have rural is a place of production. So it's a place of agriculture and energy or um, resource extraction and development or rural as a recreation place. So I want to go out to the rural, rural landscapes and see, uh, and in, in, in the British context is often viewed that way in the literature is this idea of, you know, rolling hills and very pastoral views and somewhere where I consume agriculture as something aesthetically pleasing rather than a, than a productive industry in its own right. Or, you know, other kind of more normative description, descriptions, and they can be positive or they can be um, negative, but they, there's always, it always seems to be this claiming of the space by outside forces uh, to determine what, what is of value about the place. And, and in a large, to a large extent, the research that I'm doing as part of my dissertation is oriented around coming up with different stories that are place-based in that they come from the place itself rather than an external uh, framing of what that place is to other people, but what does it mean to the people that live and work in those environments? Yeah, reminds me of a really good piece I read in Slate recently, um, which was about how nature needs privacy too, which I thought was a really good title. And it was about like a lot of different examples, but like one of the main ones that they were talking about was people who are into bird watching using some kind of really cool like open source mapping tool. They take photographs of birds and say like, there are really interesting birds over here and recording them and showing information with conservationists. And then poachers using the same tool that other people were using to share information as a community to say, oh, there are really rare birds in this area. Let's go capture them. And then this community had to rebuild their tools so that if a bird was marked as rare, it actually hid it rather than shared it. And they were talking about how there's this point in which sharing information and sharing things that are beautiful, because they were also talking about like poppy fields and various other things, 
Like there's this one point where you go, I share it so it can be protected. But if you share it too much, then people want to go see it and destroy it and own it. And you have to kind of take this point of being like, I love this thing and I want people to see it, whether that's birds or beauty or nature or your hometown. And then say, actually, we have to keep it secret to protect it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's such a fascinating fact, and I can think directly of examples um, locally around um, folks that were kind of promoting things like a sunflower field is a bit of an agro-tourism thing. You know, do it come Dick makes beautiful Instagram backdrop, you know, this huge thing of sunflowers. But people were just showing up and kind of trampling the space with very little concern of the fact that that sunflowers are grown as as a crop food, both for flowers for sale as, as market flowers, but also for sunflower seeds. People do the same thing with, like you said, with poppies or with fields for um, floral production of, of not that quite that connection. Like, oh, this is pretty, but not that that's connected to somebody's livelihood either. And so that idea of not only protecting a space because it's beautiful and that nature needs to right, but also that these are working spaces for a lot of people. So that field of corn may look beautiful and you want to stand in it and do your things, but but you're also trampling on on private property and and potentially you know, destroying crops produce farmer, which is it, no different than any other business property. And I think that goes into the same idea around data um, when it comes to rural areas and, and particularly agricultural data. You know, I think this idea who feels entitled to rural landscapes is really interesting because when we start getting getting into these ideas around precision agriculture and smart farming and the data produced from those things, not unlike you know, bird watchers and, and, and the poaching discussion, but we kind of, a lot of, a lot of other organizations and even levels of government expect agriculture producers to just share their data as if it wasn't private, private business data. But then at the same time, if you have a piece of smart farming equipment from Case International or from John Deere, I don't know that we've really gone far enough down the data governance rules to say, well, who owns that? Does John Deere own that? Does the farmer own that? Where is it stored? Is it all going to Wisconsin? And if something happens down there and those servers go dark, uh, does the farmer in, in rural Manitoba lose 15 years of crop data? Start talking hmm. about the right to privacy, but not only the right to privacy, but the right to um, informed and knowledgeable decisions about how we're going to tackle what these futures look like and manage all the things that come from it. And the best thing I heard was that you know, data is not the new oil. Data is the new uranium in that it it is incredibly, you know, useful for some reason. It's powerful. It has, you know, potential military implications. Um, it also has a ton of data side effects, ton of side effects of what, you know, do you want to store it? Why are you accruing more of it than you really need? And how are we going to figure out a way to deal with it? And I think that those are conversations that we're talking about in terms of the surveillance in city spaces around the conversation of the, the smart city side of, of who is being captured in what way. But I think because largely people don't think of, of rural places as anything other than what they have in their own imagination, I don't know that we're having the rich conversations about those things, whether it's environmental um, protection uh, and data collection related to that or agriculture. I'm not sure that we're we're giving those things the weight that they deserve. And if we are, we're, we're late to the game in doing so. Yeah. I think you're you're really right. And I know even when we have talked about these things before, it's not something that I've really known a lot about. And we talked about place-based consent. 
when we were talking about cities, like if you have these areas that are owned by corporations like Sidewalk Labs, how do you consent when you cross into that zone where all this data is being collected? And I think that's an interesting question to talk about when all the stuff that you were saying about like digital farming and this place-based consent is like, where and when does the consent occur in those situations? Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating, it's a fascinating discussion. And one that I think producers, so when I say we're not wrestling this conversation, certainly produce, like when it comes to agriculture in particular, and, and I want to be clear that I, that agricultural policy and rural policy or rural development, they're, they are related and they're involved with each other, but we often conflate agricultural policy for rural policy. And then we lose a lot of the community aspects of things. But for the sake of this discussion, you know, when you talk about that place-based consent, which I think is such a great, is such a great turn of phrase, but uh, friends of mine were talking about how they have uh, increasingly turned to AI and robotics in managing their dairy herd. And this has been great for them in terms of the amount of data they can, they can use in terms of effectively managing milk production and, and the, the health of their herd. Um, and it's also given them some of their life back because you're not milking cows twice a day, you have a robotic milker, it's all great. But there's also new kind of, of tools that are coming out that essentially record cows in the barn to kind of, you can get based on their behavior, different early signs or, or see how efficiently they're consuming feed. But those video capture things would also be capturing people in the barn, right? And that might be their children, that might be their staff. And if you have staff who never, you know, did give consent to that, or if you don't want that recording and that data going back to a private company, even though it's, you know, your production, where that data is stored and who's being captured by that, even just tangentially. So we think about, you know, your Google Home kind of always being on. Well, what about uh, the equivalent in a barn being always on and, and what it captures you know, imagining in your own workplace that, that there was recording devices around that were on by virtue of their being effective tools for managing the business, but how do they interact with your life? I think these are all important conversations to have about the trade-off for that. Then the other thing is, you know, public space versus private space. Um, things that you might accept as an acceptable risk as part of running your business versus isn't is, is it an acceptable risk for me to walk out and assume that information is being collected about me by by recording devices or by sensors that I'm not even aware of where they are. Um, you know, like those are interesting. There's differences there in that conversation. Yes, that's a lot. <laughs> I'm just, I, my brain is just exploding. Um, well, because generally when we talk about either, like you said, the rural or the agricultural, um, from a very urban perspective, which is very limited, usually the things that you hear about is the right to repair stuff, mm. right? Like big corporations not letting farmers repair their own equipment. There's always this context of copyright. And I mean, even like the the right to open your device, you know, everything is. But um, I have, and this is just because of my own limitations, right? But like um, I have very rarely heard about uh, farming and data and data ownership Briefly, what other uh, blind spots do you think we're seeing? The farming data is a big one. Do you have any other you can say no? Yeah, well, so the right to repair stuff is really fascinating from 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 that perspective as well. And it's often conflicting messages because I know, you know, friends and people that, that have, and, you know, John Deere has 3D printed them a drill head for a cedar. 
um, that would just get them through the day, you know, when you're, when you're really need until a part can be brought in to fix it and they have to bring the machine in. So you kind of have these warring things, right? You have like these examples of where that technology is used um, essentially to support this idea of right to repair and understanding the importance of when you're in a, a crunch time with something like farming that, you know, if you're gambling on the weather all the time. So when you are planting or harvesting that, that you need to be able to go and equipment manufacturers finding ways to accommodate and support that to retain business versus this idea of, of who who owns the proprietary technology within the gear that you're using. Um, other blind spots that um, that strike me as particularly transient are, are, are differentiating between between different types of non-urban spaces. So at least in the Canadian context, we tend to get um, statements across most policy that, that will refer to rural Northern and First Nations as if it's kind of all one word and all one thing. Um, and within that, you have distinct places and communities and nations, in the case of First Nations, that have vastly different needs. And they may overlap, but our treatment of saying just everything that's not urban is rural is a major gap in terms of how we address these things because getting infrastructure out to southwestern Ontario is challenging, but getting it, getting fiber buried in the muskeg in northern Manitoba where you have to essentially use liquid nitrogen to freeze the ground to roll out the equipment to put cables out there, whole other of itself. And I think there's somewhat of an assumption that that, that they will cost the same or they will involve the same kinds of difficulties. Something that's been really interesting, and this this came out of largely First Nations, I think, driven uh, telecommunications business in northern Manitoba, uh, who was talking about this idea that if we have land rights and air rights, water rights, and the duty to consult Indigenous people on the use of those territories, what about bandwidth? Because bandwidth is a finite natural resource. And this, this person from this company was really making the argument that there is a place there for rural communities and First Nations to say, well, we own the rights to the bandwidth that goes above our land. And if you want to work with us or want to deliver satellite service or, or, or any of those kinds of things, that there needs to be some sort of acknowledgement and contractual relationship related to that. And I thought that was just such, it was a thing that I had never considered until this May. It's really fascinating when we think about resources, are we capturing all of the resources that we think about? And then finally is this idea this idea of capacity. Um, so things like the Smart Cities Challenge uh, in Canada, which is this um, sort of it was a competitive funding opportunity for communities of all sizes across Canada to compete for investment in sort of future-oriented, uh, technology-driven social and economic development projects. And and, and it's a fascinating initiative and I think worthy of, of looking at and, and being supportive of, of trying to find ways around this. But it was predicated kind of on the idea that in order to participate in this, you have to have the capacity to develop an application to the program. Your community has to have the internal resources, both people, knowledge, financial, in order to kind of bring this together and get a proposal on the table. And so what happens to communities that didn't have the capacity to, or the foresight ability to participate in this where are they in these conversations and how do we how do we support different mechanisms for investment that aren't predicated on that? I'm a real critic of, of this competitive funding model for community initiatives because I think that it it really isn't how we should be doing things instead of finding ways for all communities to succeed. Who are we not seeing 
in these conversations? Who's not at the table? And, and when you go to a conference or you go to kind of these major public events that are related to these, usually it's rural voices in the panels. Um, usually it's rural voices that aren't old white men because uh, there are lots of rural voices that are not what that stereotypical image of a rural voice has become. And by virtue of not hearing those voices, then we're missing these conversations. Wow. <laughs> I have yeah, there's just like, interrupt. there's so much like juicy, brilliant content in there. I just learned so much. Yep. Yes, I have a very high soapbox. I can get on it forever. So thank you for letting me do that. <laughs> thank you for sharing so much knowledge with us, to be yeah, honest. It's fascinating. And, and you guys ask such great questions. I think it's that curiosity about experiences of people that aren't like us that is so important right and I think that uh, you know even when you're saying you know coming from an urban context and things it's that ability to to kind of surface some of those questions because I have the same thing you know I'm uh, mostly a rural a rural kid and spent my whole life living and working that way so I go to large cities and kind of end up a little bit cross-eyed so um, it goes both ways yeah speaking yeah. of curiosity Ruth can I ask my very curious question please do Usually here in the podcast, we try to ask people about their origin story. So you already kind of alluded to it a little bit just now. But like, why are you doing what you're doing? What brought you here? And yeah, in a nutshell, your origin story. My origin story. I feel very much like I belong in like the Marvel Universe now or something. I need my own you do. story. So, and I was just thinking about this in the context of my qualifying exam, because I was, I was trying to think of how to introduce it. I was like, how did I get here for a sunny day in August to be standing in this room talking about extremely nerdy things? Uh, and a lot of it comes down to, I was, I was really fortunate to be raised in a, in a public service household. So my dad worked for the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture and Food for his entire career. Um, and my mom worked in healthcare. She was a, an OR-ER nurse for a very long time, and then into materials management and logistics and and so I always grew up, you know, with this emphasis on on the public sector as an incredible vehicle for for being a force for good in your community and, and the importance of of the public service as a as a mechanism for um good stewardship over over the things that matter to, to most people. And uh, so I always thought I I you know never thought of a career outside of the public service and then did that for quite a long time. So I I did an undergraduate degree in international development master's degree in public administration. My undergrad was from Guelph and my master's from UVic in BC and uh, the University of Victoria, sorry for folks not, not within the British Columbia or Canadian context. Out of that, I fell in love with local government. Uh, I really loved working at the municipal level and had the tremendous opportunity to get to work across a lot of different contexts in southwestern Ontario, mostly in smaller to mid-sized cities and rural communities. And a lot of that desire came from having grown up in rural and small town places, um, coming from kind of that first, uh, I was the first sort of generation on both sides to be raised not on the farm. So both my mom and dad raised on the farm and then, um, but I grew up in a small town and always had those farming experiences very close at hand. And then I spent most of the last sort of decade working on an initiative related to broadband infrastructure in rural Canada and these this idea around community innovation and place-based innovation in, in rural and regional contexts. And I love this work so much. And then you start to get to a point of being kind of like, are we just getting lucky at some of the stuff that we're doing? Is that there's some things that seem to be working really well? And then a combined, you know, frustration of, you know, in the 2016, seeing that, that innovation agenda be developed without 
much in the way of, of a holistic idea of what rural development would look like in its context and, and things that were happening in rural places. And so I'd made the mistake of saying out loud, well, I wonder if, if there's a PhD <laughs> in this. Uh, and, you know, one of those things of being careful what you wish for out loud because I said it and it happened. And so uh, I left both that, those jobs working in, in the public sector and came back to school at Guelph and have been exceptionally fortunate to, to get to continue working on, on these initiatives from a different angle, from a different lens, and, and spend a lot of great time working with really, really cool practitioners in both community level um, and at other uh, in other orders of government to kind of look at at the idea of evidence-based rural policy and, and innovation and infrastructure investment and it's all kind of come full circle from this this real interest and love of getting to ride around in the car with my dad when he was doing visits to, to small communities and farms for his agricultural engineering um, practice to getting to do a similar thing and getting to support these places that I got to know and love through through that in a, in a really interesting way of surfacing different ways of looking at things. So the origin story is a bit of a ping pong all over the place, but held together with just this love for, for the, the weird and wonderful stuff that happens in rural Canada. That's so awesome. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing, you know, what you know and, and, you know, giving us some of your time this lovely Sunday. Yeah, we, we really appreciate this. Yeah, I guess the last question is, where can people find you if you uh, if you want to be found? If I want to be found. So I'm, I'm incredibly findable by, by just my first name and last name uh, in the Google machine, uh, but also on Twitter as, um, at Ashley Whedon. And then uh, we have uh, work that I do for my PhD advisor, who's Dr. Ryan Gibson. Um, you can find a lot of that work at www.ruraldev.ca. Um, and coming soon, I've got some stuff launching, hopefully in the next couple months at ruralfutures.ca. So there'll be, there'll be some new content coming up there that's, that's really pushing some of this discussion around rural policy development in a future-oriented context. So for the super deep wonky nerds, that might be of interest. And I'm always, always happy to chat. This was, this was just a pure delight to get to kind of come on and, and talk about questions that, that I'm wrestling with and that are uh, huge open opportunities to kind of dig in and do the work. Um, so I really appreciate the opportunity to do so. It was just a, just a joy. Oh, <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for being like an incredible podcast guest. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Well, good hosts make a good guest. And, we're yeah. <laughs> and for the listeners, we're going to plug all of those resources in the footnotes. Check them out and share them and make this thing a thing because it's it's already a thing needs to be <laughs> signal boosted thank you so much all right ruth that was really really good how are you doing after that interview oh my god i made so many notes i got a little bit distracted when i was like oh i'll just try and bring out what my core favorite points were and then i'm just like oh like everything is my favorite point So, so what are you uh, what are you taking with you this this week? Um, so first of all, the word metronormativity. Thank oh, you. you That's mine. going in the bank. Oh, I got that first. Yeah, that was that was amazing. I also thought the whole bit about the right to privacy also being around the right to make knowledgeable and informed decisions about consent was just like an interesting framework on it that I haven't particularly heard before and especially then taking that whole point about data and farming and saying 
you know, who owns all of that data and that actually a lot of the time there are big corporations who are taking the information that individual farmers are creating and claiming ownership over it. And all of those questions around who's being recorded and what's happening in those places, it's just like, I didn't know anything about it beforehand and I love learning stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, I I feel like there are a lot of different things that I could still continue to talk about, but I also just want to say... That interview really reminded me how lucky I feel I am doing this podcast because it was exactly what I really like doing, which is a chance to learn about an area of technology that I don't really know much about and getting to interview someone who has like a lot to say and a lot to learn from. So I just thought it was really special to get to do that. Yeah, plus one to that. What about what about you? What are you taking away? I mean, I also had that metronormativity bit. And in terms of data and farming data, I think I never really thought of the fact that data is so powerful. Like whoever owns the data around farming has a lot, a lot of knowledge, intimate knowledge about the workings of of a country even. Just to think of farming data, for example, in the context of national security, like if I, a foreign country, because I own the company that, you know, you use my my instruments. If I own your data, I can I can then know how your crops are doing and trade and mm. you know leverage that information in like international trade. Maybe like just like what what Ashley was saying. Why are you storing more food that you need to? Are you planning something? Just all of that. It just becomes yeah. Or like knowing if added somewhere doesn't have enough food like knowing but that's a really big vulnerability yeah exactly so knowing what you have what you don't have your decision making and just just the fact of who who owns that data just becomes a so much more like loaded question when you start factoring in all of these other potential uses for it so i don't know i'm all of a sudden really interested in in the ownership of data around ag- agriculture and I mean, not only in Canada, but like I think of other countries like, you know, Mexico, where I'm from. Who the hell is owning all of that? Like, uh, so, yeah, a lot to think about around that. And I'm only looking forward to learning more about the rural and the digital uh, together. It was such a good interview. Thank you again, Ashley, for that. That was a great episode. So we hope, listeners, that you really enjoyed it. If you have any comments, questions, follow-ups, um, you can find us at things intersect on twitter or our website theintersectionofthings.com where all the footnotes can be found ruth if you want to be found where can you be found you can find me on twitter at nescient which is n-e-s-i-e-n-t you can find me sometimes at undaced and such and And now ruth wants to interject with something what do you want to interject with ruth Oh, I was just going to say, you know, the other lovely thing that you could do for us is leave us a review on iTunes. And I'm going to give like a specific shout out, especially if you live in the UK, because we've had some great reviews from people in Canada. We've got some great reviews from people in the US. No reviews from the UK yet. So UK listeners, where you at? Leave us a review. Tell us that you love the podcast. Thanks. Get in there. All right. Uh, This has been another episode of The Intersection of Things. The music is by David Mark Hucklesby. The rest of stuff is done by us, except for <laughs> editing, because now editing is done by the wonderful Ellie from the Let's Hangout podcast. So this has been another episode. Thank you so much and see you next time. Bye. Bye.